0: Uh, we are getting ready for uh, our Christmas series, it's going to start next week, but it's not going to be too Christmassy, because I understand the rules, see the, 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 the God ordained rules that you've got to have a Thanksgiving before you have a Christmas, and if you, if you put those decorations up beforehand, we just we, we were tolerating you, we're praying for you, we're trying to work through it. How many of you are pre-Thanksgiving Christmas decorators, like you already got a tree up, go ahead, be honest, okay, praise God, praise God, okay. okay. And how many of you are living with someone like that? All right, there's a prayer support group that's going to start meeting on Tuesday. I'm just kidding. Um, No, I I get it. I I love Thanksgiving. I love the Christmas season. Uh, Some of y'all have been listening to NSYNC's Christmas album since like July. Merry Christmas, happy holiday. All right, sorry. I had that sister. I had that sister. Um, We are just uh, in this gap, though, going to look, starting all the way back in the Old Testament, at the fact that before Jesus ever comes, God calls a shot. And if there's one thing I want you to learn about uh, the way God works is he will often tell us in some detail what he is going to do before he does it. And then the enemy will try and work against that plan only to his own demise and with no ability to come against the work that God has planned. And so we're going to start all the way back in the Old Testament in this Rise of the King series that starts next week. And we're going to look at Israel's request for a king instead of God being the distinctive marker over them as a people. And we're going to look at that story that threads all the way to the real king that comes after 400 years of silence on a silent night in the middle of nowhere and how God changed the world in that moment, which is why we have this Christmas season that we celebrate. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We're super excited for that. Uh, in, as building up to that, I had two weeks to kind of teach what I would call core messages. Things that I would hope become a part of the DNA of this church, Uh, no matter what series we're teaching or book of the Bible we're studying, my hope would be that these two elements would be found in our fellowship and in our community. And so last week, we talked about our need to find your few. There's a need for all of us to have a few people that get below the surface, that when we push everybody else away, they're the people that we allow to come in and we know that when they speak and when they are present around us, they love Jesus, they love the church and they love us in that order. Uh, They're the kind of people that are, in the words of a prophet named DMX, they're your ride or die. Uh, They're they're the people that you you come hell or high water are going to live this life with and as they rise, you rise, as they fall, you fall, you multiply joy with them. You divide grief with them. And so we want you to find your few. And as a, as a church, as a community, I cannot guarantee that you're going to have lifelong friends if you sign up for one community group and you go through a six-week study with Beth Moore or somebody in it. And at the end of it, you're going to walk away from it going, man, we just want to every Friday night till Jesus comes back, drink cheer wine and hang out with them. I, I can't guarantee that, but we can create space within a group that's, that's smaller than a crowd, that's smaller than an assembly, where you get to know some people, where you begin to share life, and maybe by God's grace, as we pray and seek out our few, God would appoint within a group a few people who become your lifers. The people you go and eat Mexican uh, food with on a Friday night, the people that you celebrate life's victories and you uh, share even life's defeats as they come into your story together. And, And that's really a driving passion for me, that you would find a few people that would love you well, that you would love well, that you would generously pour your life into and out for them. And as a result, you would all become more like Jesus together. Now, at the end of last week, we gave an Invitation for people to become community group hosts to create space within their homes where maybe people could find not just a group but a few that would become their lifelong friends and we had seventeen people who signed up to be hosts praise God oh y'all are waking up you're not aware that the Braves are one game away from clinching and if you, I mean like like there's reason to celebrate Carolina had a bye week I mean like. Let's celebrate, amen? Uh, so we had 17 people who were gonna create space in January for you to find your few. And so if you still wanna be a host leader, we'd love for you to do that. You can talk to people out at the hub on your way out if you'd like to consider hosting a community group. You don't have to be a theologian. You don't have to you know, have everything figured out in your faith. In fact, I would submit to you that none of us have it all figured out. That's why we're still here and our Bibles are still open. Amen. And so if you would like to host, we'd love for you to do that. Uh, But we'd love if you're not going to host for you to get into a a host group and grow in the Lord. Today I'm going to talk to you about, I think the second least favorite subject, but it's essential in the life of a church that you can hear about. I'm not going to talk to you about money because everyone gets excited whenever the pastor's like, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. You cannot serve both God and money. And everyone's like, yes, preach that more of that. Amen. Just letting it sink in. The the second least favorite thing is this thing called evangelism. People do not like, I've learned in 13 plus years of being a senior pastor, people do not like you talking about evangelism because it's in that list that my papa called the ought to list. You ought to do it, but none of y'all do it. You ought to, but you don't, you know, or many don't. And my papa used to tell me there's all kinds of stuff that I do, will tell you to do, but I do not do. So do not do as I do do. And I told him that there's a whole lot of doo-doo in your life. And he's like, when you get 93, that's what happens. Um, and so, so evangelism falls in that category. And I think it's for a couple of reasons. And I just ripped my Bible with my ribbon. Oh, man, that's, that's a sad day. Moment of silence for my Bible and Amy Grant's music career. It's, it's funny. It's, she's an artist. She married Vince Gill. Anyway, Vince is great. Go rest high. Never mind. None of y'all know about that. We're going to go to John 1. That's where we're going to go to talk about evangelism. But let me me explain why we don't like hearing about evangelism often. Um, Evangelism is the active pursuit of a miracle. That's why most of us don't like doing it, because miracles are things that we can't do. God can do miracles in us. He can do miracles through us. But when we're depending on God to do a miracle in and through us, it can get Impatient, it can get frustrating. We can begin to wring our hands out trying to figure it out. But evangelism is you going and proclaiming the gospel to dead things so that they would come alive. So it's like showing up at a funeral home going, things are about to get hopping, right? Like, like, I think there's an, a need for us just to confess that no amount of scripture memorization, no amount of gospel presentation presenting, no amount of door knocking, no amount of conversations, no amount of factual evidence that gives proof to the reason for belief in the resurrection of Jesus, which are all things that are good, will raise a dead person to life. It takes a miracle. It takes the proclamation of the gospel of God, but it takes the work of the Holy Spirit of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead to raise what is dead to life. And for a lot of us, we got these weird categories in our head. There's the easy to reach and the uneasy to reach. There's the savable and the unsavable. And I wanna to submit to you that to somebody, you are both sides of that category. For some people, you are probably, oh, they're easy to reach, God will get them. And for others, they're like, yeah, come, hell will freeze over before that happens. Uh, when I was, uh, first became a new believer, it happened my freshman year of college at Anderson University. And I, six months later, I found myself at a church as a youth intern So six months into being a new believer, had a Paul-type conversion experience where I went from uh, defending against why you shouldn't love Jesus, uh, kind of categorizing and compartmentalizing Jesus, growing up in a saturated church culture uh, community, one that you're familiar with because it's the same one that you live in, right? So I heard the gospel, knew the gospel. I knew enough scripture to be deadly and knew enough scripture to condemn my own self with what I didn't do. Because at the end of the day, Rick Warren said he's a pastor in California that you only believe the parts of the Bibles that the, the parts of the Bible that you do, and a lot of you you know a lot of Bible, but you don't believe it because you don't do a lot of it. Does that make sense? And so uh, I became a believer, became a youth intern at this church, and a bunch of my youth kids were at a GNC store. It used to be in the Haywood Mall, and they were buying their you know supplements and everything that they needed. That was just the heater blessing you with some heat. Uh, and as they were doing it, they were talking about me and youth group and what was going on and my friend didn't hear the youth group part but he heard my name from high school. You know that old line from that Lincoln Park song, not that you knew me back then, okay? Okay. Like, so, so Jonathan, my high school friend, hears the youth group kids talking about me, and he's like, hey, you guys know Russ? And they're like, yeah, and he thinks, you know, like Hank Williams Jr. song, and begins to tell them all the stuff that we did when we broke the commandments back in the day, uh, like we were popping Tic Tacs, and these little kids, that weren't little, they are up like 15, 16, they're like... And so Jonathan ends with his stories, and he looks at him and says, so how do you know Russ? <clears throat> You ever have one of them moments? And the, and the U-Crew kids, innocent enough, went, he's our youth pastor. And Jonathan, and I'm using quotes so that you don't get mad at me. You may leave here and you may be mad, but it won't be at me because I'm quoting. And you can, you can quote. It's like, bless your heart, I get a pass. He said, no blanking way. Right to my kids. And our kids were like, yeah, that's what, what he is. That is the miracle of salvation. I was dead, I was dead in my sin. I, I, I had no desire for God. I didn't like church, love church, wanna be around church. I was doing everything I could do to convince my grandma that I was saved while living like a hellion away from her. And let me be very clear. We live in a firsthand faith, meaning what your family believes, what your cultural background believes will not get you into heaven. So when you get there, you're not gonna be able to say, well, my family's Christian. No, were you Christian? My family followed Jesus. No, did you follow Jesus? And this is what I love about the gospel. It is for all people, but it is personalized and presented to you, and you must decide for yourself who you say Jesus is. It's a question that you have and I have to answer for ourselves. Grandma, parents, culture, none of those things answer for us, but that is the question that we must answer for ourselves. So most of us don't like Uh, evangelism and talking about it because it requires a miracle that is dependent upon the work of God in and through us to do what we can't do. And we then become a part of the solution, a part of the proclamation, but we cannot deliver the finish line. We cannot deliver the harvest. The harvest is always the Lord's in evangelism. I think a second reason we don't like talking about evangelism, if I'm being honest, is that we don't like to prioritize eternity in the way that we view our temporary time. Look, a lot of you right now are consumed with a whole lot of worry, a whole lot of uh, frustration over what's going on in your life. And I would just simply ask, if you're a follower of Jesus, have you considered eternity with the way that you're leveraging what's temporary? Money? Temporary. Time? Temporary. Jesus will do away with time at the very end. I mean, these are temporary resources that we have your skills, your talents, your abilities on this side of eternity and in their form and the way that you use them. That, that is a temporary thing. I will not always stand on stages and preach Now, I believe there's reason to believe that we will all testify, not just me, but everybody will testify for eternity of the goodness of God, of the work of God, to the glory of God, but he will not need me to exegete Romans chapter one and explain the sufficiency of the gospel and how it needs to be proclaimed and we shouldn't be ashamed of it. Like that is a limited time position that will be eliminated and filled with just a choir and symphony of people praising, worshiping, and enjoying God forever. And so I wanna make sure that eternity is impacting my temporary meaning what matters there is what matters with what I have in temporary time with temporary resource to to leverage for God's kingdom and and I think the reason a lot of us hate evangelism is it brings an eternal view into something that we're not comfortable with it brings the view in that Jesus is exclusively the way the truth and the life Acts chapter four says that there's no other name under heaven by which men are saved except the name of Jesus. So it's exclusive in that you cannot find salvation in good works. You cannot find salvation in a good culture or a good family that you were born into. You could be born into the worst family ever. You, you could be like the family that is always known as we have a room waiting for you at the prison if it's your last name family. And the gospel can reach you. And you can have the best name and the most wealth and the best of resources and positioning. In life, and it will not matter in eternity if you don't have Jesus. So it's exclusive in that everybody, rich, poor, whatever your background is, whatever your past is, no matter how salacious or unsalacious your testimony may be, we all need Jesus. For the most self righteous to the most unrighteous, we need Jesus. But it's inclusive in the fact that Jesus offered himself to everybody, to whosoever would believe. It's God's desire that none would perish, but that all would come to salvation through Christ Jesus. So it's exclusive, but it's inclusive in that Jesus isn't just holding it out for the rich or for a cultural group, but he's offered it to everybody, to whosoever would believe. And so we've been called into this story. And if we have met Jesus, we've been invited to be a player in God's story and that should take precedent in the way that we look at temporary time because we want to give God glory not just in eternity but as we're looking towards eternity and the second coming of Christ. And so what I wanna do today is I wanna talk to you about being a witness. Because it's not your job to deliver the results, but it is your job to be a witness to what God's done in your life. And we're gonna look at one of my favorite biblical characters. His name is John the Baptist. Now, John's cool not because he ate bugs and not because he showered rarely, although those are admirable qualities. That was a joke. But John, John is cool because he was extremely devoted to what he was called to this earth to do. Uh, we know a lot about John and his background. At the time that John the disciple writes John uh, about John the Baptist in John chapter one, John the Baptist has been ministering for over a year. And as a result in his ministry, which was a pretty simplistic ministry from what we get from scripture, his message was repent for the kingdom of hand is at near. So you have, keep in mind, I wish this was culturally relevant to you and your background. Uh, you have... A saturated religious culture that is so saturated with religious duty that it is um, that they're numb in heart, they're indifferent towards the work of God, they're not expectant that God's actually going to do something. I wish there was something that would relate to the Bible Belt. There's churches and synagogues and and festivals all the time. And in the middle of that culture, John's message to the over-religious people is repent. And it took off like wildfire because people knew that their self-righteousness was insufficient, that they, in light of the law, were condemned by the law, and they were never going to overcome the law. And if the, this Messiah that was prophesied all the way back in the Old Testament didn't come, that they were doomed and in trouble. And so they, they knew they needed a savior and they, could, they were not gonna be that savior for themselves. And so John's message is repent and people took off. They loved that message. So he's been preaching for about a year. Large crowds have begun to come and seek John in the wilderness. And in the middle of this, we learn John's mission. John's mission, the Baptist, his mission was uh, to, give, uh, to point to and give witness to Jesus. John had a singular mission, prepare the way for the Lord. So his life ambition was to give witness to and to point to Jesus and he had a unique calling and I'm not trying to tell you that you're John the Baptist but anyone who is a follower of Christ has been sent with a similar mission. To live a life on the other side of salvation that is simple and focused on pointing to and giving fame and glory to the son of God who's done this great work instead of people like you and me. So if you wanna be a great witness, I would give you three things from John 1 that are coming out of his life, and then I wanna talk to you about how we as a church are gonna move into the season of evangelism and sharing our faith with our community. John 1, 19, you are with me? Say amen. amen. All right, verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, here's the question, who are you? It's a great question to ponder, and I would invite you to consider it today. When that question comes to you directly, who are you? When you hear that question, how would you begin to define yourself, describe yourself? Uh, would you use failure or success to give yourself some sense of significance or insignificance in your description? Would you use roles, relationships, and talents to describe and answer that question? Well, I'm a mother and that's foundational to me or I'm a wife or a husband or I'm a dad. I mean, I'm, I'm a CEO, I'm a day laborer. How, what would you use to describe and answer the question, who are you? I, I think it's an essential thing to consider. It comes to John and he gives a unique answer. And I think it points to the kind of witness we are to have as well. Who are you? Verse 20, he came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. I'm not God. You're making a big deal out of me. I'm on this platform. I'm getting all this attention. I am not God. Well then, verse 21, who are you? They asked again. They asked, Are you Elijah, who was the prophet, who was prophesied to come before the Messiah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No, then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah I am the voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. It's such a great text. I, I, he, he points back to a prophecy that's about him and he says, prepare the way for the Lord. There's another text in Isaiah where it says, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove the obstacles for my children to come home. Church, that's our job. In our community, we are an embassy that represents your house, where your house is, where our church is, wherever you live, wherever you go, you are a walking embassy that represents the kingdom to come and the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ if you're a follower of him. So we represent him everywhere our feet go. We are a kingdom people that represent God's kingdom wherever we go so that as people are encountering us, they would see this kingdom to come. And in doing so, we in that witness clear the way for others to hear the gospel, to find hope in Jesus, to know that God has not left us to special. Speculation about him, but he has given us revelation through his son so that we would know him and walk with him and serve him and love him. Are you tracking with me? So notice what John's saying. He says uh, in verse uh, 23, he points to Isaiah chapter 40, verse three, then the Pharisee who had been sent, verse 24, asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? What right do you have to be the people of God. That's a good question that's gonna come from the enemy from time to time. What right do you have to feel like you're really saved? What right do you have to think that God's gonna give you grace that's sufficient for a sinful person like you? What right do you have? Oh, it's a great question, isn't it? Because whenever you're humble, it's an easy answer. But whenever your identity is built on your pride and your track record, it's a hard answer. Instead of being gospel-oriented, you've got to be defensive-oriented. God put you on offense the day Jesus walked out of the tomb, not on defense. Some of you are running around trying to defend yourself when it's not your job to defend yourself. It's your job to to offensively proclaim the gospel so that it can go out into the lives of those that are around us. I wish someone would just amen and get into this with me. It's a fun text. John told them, I baptized with water, but here in this crowd is someone you do not recognize. Does he answer the question about why he's significant? Does he argue with them over why they should value him? Does he try to show his credentials, point to a wall where there's diplomas hanging and say, that's why I get to baptize, sit down and shut up? No. Instead, he points to someone else. Verse 27, through his ministry, uh, though his ministry follows mine, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. This encounter took place uh, in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. Okay, okay. Let me be very clear. John has reason to boast of how righteous in and of himself he has been. There's reason for John to boast. Let's start with the fact that when he was born, he was what we would call a miracle baby. His mom had been barren, she was a Levite and from the tribe of Levites. She had married a Levite in Zechariah, and they had served the Lord faithfully, but they were without children. And they were later in their life. Zechariah got got chosen by Lot to go in during the middle. lots. that's where they would roll this thing that looked like dice. And uh, most priests never got the opportunity to go in uh, to pray the prayer during this festival. Zechariah gets chosen after 400 years of silence. Malachi's been written. God's not speaking. Promises are being hoped in and waited for. And if we're being honest, you think about how long you wait before you get impatient before you start being unexpected of God moving. And so Zechariah goes in to pray the ritual prayer of God, would you make the name of Israel great? Would you restore her to her goodness? And in the middle of that prayer that had ritually been prayed for 400 years with no answer, Gabriel showed up and said, the prayer is getting answered. And not only is the prayer getting answered, you're going to have a part in that story that you never would have dreamed of. Your wife will be with child. She will have a baby that'll be part of this redemptive plan and the prophecy of the one who would make the way for the one who was the way will be your child. Zechariah couldn't believe it. (laughs) But weeks and months pass and we meet John the Baptist. John in his mother's womb is greeted by Mary who has Jesus in her womb. And we're told that from the womb, John was spirit filled and he jumped from the spirit in response to Jesus in the womb. That's why we believe in the sanctity of life from the, from, the, from the cradle to the grave. So we fight for image bearers of God, whether it's in the womb or right before they get in the tomb. Some of us, we love fighting for in the womb, but we don't fight until they're in the tomb. That's a problem, church. It's an inequity that's in our theology for a lot of us is we'll stand for injustice against the unborn, but we'll stand for, uh, we'll stand for, in, we'll stand against injustice for the unborn, but we'll stand for injustice against our neighbor or our brother or our sister and we sit in silence. Sorry, that's meddling. I don't want to get in too much trouble. I'm new. Here's Here's my point. Uh, John has reason to boast because God has this great plan for his life because from the womb, he's got this great promise over his life. John, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 11, it tells us that Jesus said this, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than. I mean, I know it's supposed to be a humble brag, but if Jesus said that about me, I couldn't handle it because I'd be walking around like, y'all heard? (laughs) Jesus, not Oprah, not Oprah. Not, not psycho. they all heard what's been said about me. Jesus said, I'm the greatest that's ever been born of a woman. Yet in his witness, as he's being questioned, who are you? He in humility responds over and over again to point, not to who he is, but to who Jesus is. And that's what I want you to see. If we wanna be an effective witness, we've gotta be a humble witness. If you wanna be an effective witness, you've gotta be a humble witness. There's gonna be times where you're given influence, where you're given a platform and people look at you and they begin to ask great questions. Who are you? How is this happening? And you in that moment can pound your chest for the harvest that you did not bring in or you in that moment can point to the goodness of God who did what you could not do in and of yourself. One gives glory to God, one gives glory to yourself. My question is, which one are you living for? John was a Nazarite. Nazarites made Pharisees look like they were pagans in their commitment to God. Nazarites never cut their hair. They never drank the fruit of the vine, which means most of y'all are eliminated um, in me. Praise God. Um, They never touched a dead body. They, they They were devout and then beyond devout. They were just so devout that they were weird to the weird. Does that make sense? So if anyone had self-righteous reasons to say, I'm great, I'm good, when he's asked, who are you? It's this guy who has this miraculous birth, who's lived a devout Christian, a a devout life that's honored God and pointed to God, but instead, his answers point to Jesus. So he's a person of great humility, and if we wanna be a great witness as a church, we need to be known as a humble people, a people humbled under and dependent upon the hand and the work of God. In fact, after Jesus' ministry starts, after Jesus' ministry starts, they began in Jesus' ministry baptizing more than John's ministry was baptizing. And John's disciples one day were standing across the river from Jesus' disciples and there was a bigger crowd around Jesus than there was around John and they weren't really happy about it. And they're like, why is First Baptist growing and we're not? But John was humble and he got a kingdom perspective and he said in John 3.30 to answer their question, he, Jesus, must increase but I must decrease. It's not about me. It never was about me. It's not about my platform. It's not about my best life now. It's not about me looking good and saving face. It's about him. It's for his glory. And if you wanna live a life that counts in eternity, outside of time and outside of what we count as being significant on this side of eternity, if you wanna live a life that counts, you're going to have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and live a life that depends on his glory and his goodness and his power to do it. If you want to be a great witness, you've got to be humble. Number two, if you want to be a great witness, you've got to have a great testimony. We need a great story. There's two things that we'll see in life, and you and I are writing one of two with the way that we're living our life one is a great biography. For some of us right now, we are writing a good biography. When we die, there will be nice things said about us. They were a great businessman. They were a faithful father. They led well. They uh, built up a great legacy that will be felt in this community forever. Well, this community will pass away. And while we can write a great biography about your tenure on this earth in the vapor that is called life, I would submit to you that God has wanted, wants something more for you. He doesn't simply desire a great story about you. He desires to give you a testimony in and through you. A testimony is a story of how God moved on your behalf. I don't care if at the end of my life, people thought that I was good. I care, though, that people know because of my life that he is good, and there's a big difference between the two. Some of you are working to earn the goodness of God. I know I'm preaching good, and y'all are asleep because it's Halloween, and y'all just went out and ate Reese's Cups all night and got wild, you know, but but I I believe God's meeting us here, guys, because some of you are wasting your life on looking good. Stop trying to save face. Stop Stop trying to make yourself approvable to people that are perishing. When you're gonna stand before a holy God and give an account for your life, I don't care what Yeezy says about you or what your friends say about you or what cultures say about you. If I am culturally irrelevant, but spiritually filled and given a testimony to the work of God, I in eternity will get to enjoy something that is of greater value than anything that could be gained in temporary time. I want a great testimony. Notice what happens with John. In John chapter one, verses 19 and 20, they approach him, if you go back in the text, they approach him and they say, uh, Oh, who are you? And as the text is introduced, it says, this was John's testimony. He doesn't give a biography. He doesn't give a story of how he's been a great person and lived a great life and done great things. He gives a testimony in this story. How do you know that? Because we see the word pop up over and over again in the text. If you look down, as I've deleted half my notes, this will be fun. Uh, if you look down in the text from, in John 1, verse 30, look at what it says. Verse 30, it says, he... Jesus is the one I was talking about when I said a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am for he existed long before me. John was born before Jesus, just in case you're getting the birth order right. But he says, He existed before me. I did not recognize Him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that He might be revealed to Israel. Notice, John's not like, He doesn't have the salacious testimony of like, I was out in Galilee and I was breaking every commandment and I was in every, you know, nickel and dime bar and I did all these horrible things. And now look at what God did. You don't need to go and act like a hellion to have a good story. The story isn't about how bad you were, the story is about how good God is. That's the point of a testimony. So don't, don't think that you've got to waste your youth and, and like screw up a bunch so that you can have a powerful story. You, Satan doesn't need your help in destroying your life or this world anymore, Okay. So like, you don't need to be his advocate. You don't need to be his helper. You don't have to go prodigal. You've already got a seat at the table. There's no need for you to run, to have a homecoming, You're home. Thank God you're here. It's all about pointing to the goodness of God, not about pointing to the bad or whatever it is you were before you met God. So John's not pointing to how bad he was or how good he was. He's pointing to how good God is in his testimony. And if you keep reading in the text, it goes on to say this, look, um, He says, I didn't know he was the one, verse 33, verse 34, I saw this happen to Jesus, so I, here's the word, testify that he is the chosen one of God. Verse 35, the following day, as John was again standing with two of his disciples, as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, what's he doing? He's testifying to who God is. So if you want to be a good witness, you can't be silent. Many have heard the quote from St. Francis of Assisi, uh, share the gospel always, when necessary, use words. That's stupid, okay? That's dumb. I get the point. The idea is your what you say should not be contradicted by what you do. But at the same time, if all you do is good stuff, I can't say, I, I don't know if I can say that yet. I'm gonna say it. If all you do is live a good, amoralistic life, then you're just acting like every other religious person who... Like, the Mormons are good people, but they believe in a different Jesus. Let me be very clear, and I'll break it down for you, and you can be mad at me, and some you are like, oh, I got a friend and a family member, and God loves that family member, but let me be very clear, the G- just because they say Jesus doesn't mean it's Jesus in Scripture. Yeah. Their beliefs are that Jesus was a man who became God, and you too can become God. Let me be very clear about it. That is not the gospel, it is anti-gospel. But they are more moralistic than you because they're trying to earn their own universe where they can be God themselves. So their motivation of the goodness looks good on the surface like all other humans goodness, but underneath the service is actually a self-righteous pursuit of getting a better eternity, which is just like every other religion. We're not earning a better eternity in this life. It's already been purchased by Jesus. It's already been given to us, oh, man. It's already been given to us. So I, my effort isn't to get from God. My effort is because he is God, because he is good. It's not that I'm waiting on his goodness. I've received his goodness. Now I get to give goodness. It's not to earn his love. I've received his love. Now I get to love. It's not to earn his forgiveness. I've received his forgiveness. Now I can freely forgive those who have sinned against me. I mean, this is the goodness of the gospel. That's why it's distinct and different and forgive me if you're offended but the gospel doesn't just sit on the shelf with other world religions it is distinguished from every other world religion there's nothing like it because it's not based on your work it's based on the work of God in and through you which has given you a story that has to be told to the nations around you oh man the gospel of Jesus that's what you need you need a good testimony of what God has done John The Baptist repeats the story of God and he repeats it frequently. Why? Because if you want to be a good witness, you've got to be a good steward. Some of us have a story. We have a testimony, but we're not a good steward of it. We don't share it, we don't talk about it. Someone heard it one time in '96 at beach camp, and we assumed that we were done. Told someone one time about it, I'm good, God. I tried, they said, don't bother, I stopped, God. I did what I was supposed to do. (laughs) No, like, we, every single day, are a walking testimony. And it's our job to steward that story, not, not to manipulate it, not to change it, we're not writing it, but, but to articulate how we've seen God move in impossible situations in our life, how we've seen God prove to be faithful and stand up to the character of what the scriptures say. So we must steward that story. John repeatedly, over this three-day period, repeatedly is telling the story of who Jesus is. That's the Messiah. This is the one that's been prophesied. That's the one that's coming. He is great. I must become less, but he must become great. And so he stewards the story. How are you doing with stewarding the story of how God's moved on your behalf? Let me ask it a different way. Do you, are you known in your neighborhood are you known at work as a person who has been reached with the radical, transformative love of Jesus Christ or are you just another neighbor? Now, now you hear that and you're like, I need to try harder. That's not what I'm trying to get at. I'm, this is not try harder. That, try harder evangelism usually doesn't work and it doesn't become a lifestyle. I, I'm after more than that. I'm after if God is so good if he is so great, then how in the world are you containing it in your little house? <laughs> if, God, if God is everything, like, like if this is true, how are you at work going, mm, I'm not gonna say it, mm, I'm not gonna say nope, it, nope, 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 I not going to wanna be weird. Well, how are you keeping it in? It doesn't, like it doesn't, comp- either this is wrong, and and we're or we've just become saturated with it and we're like oh yeah jesus yeah you probably should consider that you know this thing called hell i heard it exists you know what are we doing we, we have been given a great humility, a great testimony, but it requires a great stewardship of leveraging what is temporary for what is eternal. I don't wanna die a millionaire. I don't wanna die with a ton of money in the bank. I wanna die with leveraging everything I have financially and with my time and with my energy and with my gifts being poured out as a praise offering to Jesus. That's, that's my goal. That's, I, I wanna crash my casket I don't want to climb into it safely after picking up seashells in Polly's Island for three years. That's a tragedy. That's not a testimony. That's a, I, I, Some of y'all are working your whole life just to retire so you can go pick up seashells. What are we doing? <laughs> What'd you do for the last decade of your life? We gathered shells, walked on the beach and read the His Footprint poem every day. We never shared Christ. We weren't on mission. No, like go die in a foreign country. Die raising children who are in the foster care system. Die serving God in ways that doesn't make sense and makes everybody else who's comfortable uncomfortable. I, I, I mean, either we're gonna be here at church or we're not. I don't know. Y'all done sign me up. I'm here. Now out of this, we see evangelism take flight. This is the first place in Scripture in the New Testament we see evangelism begin to happen. And here's what happens. John the the Baptist heard, if you look at the text, in verses 29 to 33 about Jesus. Look at it with me. John 1, 29. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, he is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John testified, there's that word, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize the Holy Spirit. How did John know he was the one? He heard. He heard. And the way that you've learned about Jesus is someone told you, and you probably at first didn't immediately hear it and go, well, absolutely, I need to bend my knees, surrender my life, pray the sinner's prayer, and go to the 1040 window and spend the rest of my life serving the pygmies with the God. Like, like that's, that's not the kind of transformation that likely happened. For a lot of you, you're like, well, I doubt it because, you know, like, you're crazy and you're a helligan and you live in TR, and if you, I mean, I just don't know. Get, but you heard it. And you heard it again, and you heard it again, and you heard it again. And as a result of it, at some point, you went from hearing to going to see for yourself. So John heard, but the text in verse 34 tells us that after he heard that the Spirit would descend upon upon the Messiah, verse 34, he said, I saw this happen. So he moved from I heard it to I see it. Are you tracking with me? That made up what is known as the story of how God had moved in his life. How God had revealed Jesus, the Messiah, to him. He heard and he saw. Now notice what happens. As a result of it, verse 35, the following day after seeing this, John was again standing with two of his disciples. Now that's key. There's a lot of forms of evangelism. There's mass evangelism, where you preach and proclaim the Bible like this, uh, but there's also personal evangelism, which is what the majority of us are not doing, but I believe would make the church more effective if we were doing it. And personal evangelism is about leveraging influence with people who are far from God, but are close to you. They're far from God, close to you. Far from God, In their mind, not savable, not interested, want nothing to do with it, but God has providentially and specifically appointed and placed and given you a platform of influence into their life. John has two disciples. That means they have spent the majority of the last year of their life following John the Baptist around, watching how he sleeps, how he eats, how he teaches, how he lives, how he prioritizes time, how he uses resource, and they are mimicking that. And so after a year of investment, John leverages his influence and points to Jesus. Some of you got decades of influence and you've never pointed to Jesus. And you're underestimating your platform. You're a wildflower. You're never gonna preach to the masses. Well, what if God never asked you to preach to the masses, but he asked you to love your neighbor? So John leverages his influence after hearing and seeing. He tells his disciples, and look at what happens. As Jesus walked, uh, verse 36, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, how did John start? He heard. How did his disciples start? They heard this. They followed Jesus. What did they do? They heard, so they went to see for themselves. Verse 38, Jesus looked around, hello, um, and, and saw them following. And he said to them, what do you want? What do you want? He asked them, and they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now that's kind of peculiar. It sounds like they weren't prepared with a good question. You would think they would come right out and say, Are you the Messiah that's come to take away the sins of the world? Because that's what John says. But instead, their question is, Where are you staying? Now that's a cultural difference. We don't understand it because we're not from a Jewish culture. But in a Jewish culture, there's a clear question being asked. And the, and the question they're asking is, Can we be your disciple? Can we follow you and learn to live as you live and do as you do? And Jesus' answer is, come and see. Come and see. Verse 39, he said, it was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went to him in the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. So they heard, and they went to see for themselves. They were invited into the story. Now look, Andrew, one of the two that were following, Simon Peter's brother, was one of those men who had heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother. For good or bad, you've got influence with family. And some of your family are far from God, and you're that church person that they're like, yeah, yeah, you go to church, but we saw you back in, you know, back in the day. And, and they're jaded towards you, they're jaded towards church, they're skeptical of any real transformation that's happened in your life, they're the last to believe, right? Like if Jesus' half-brother, James, writes a part of our Bible, confessing and dying, professing that his brother was the son of God, that's a pretty strong witness, because none of you have ever stood up and said, my sister, my brother is the son of God. Yet Jesus' family... Those closest to him went away from their firsthand experience dying, proclaiming that Jesus was the son of God. just want you to think about that for a moment. Those of you who are you know, skeptical and question this whole thing, I mean, there's either a lot of deception or Jesus is revealing himself, and it's more true than we want it to be, because his half-brother got thrown off the top of the temple, it's believed, and then beaten in for not renouncing that his half-brother Jesus was the son of God. <laughs> so, Andrew goes to his family. Why? Because he has influence with his family. Why? Because he loves his brother. Because they were waiting on the Messiah. And if the Messiah had come, it would be unkind to keep that information to you and to make it exclusive from those that you care about most. And so Andrew... Uh, Andrew Simon Peter's brother was one of those men who had heard what was, what John had said and followed Jesus Andrew went to find his brother Simon verse 41 and told him we have found the Messiah which means Christ then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus looking intently at Simon Jesus said your name is Simon son of John but you will be called Cephas who did the transformation Andrew or Jesus Jesus did it. Jesus changed his name. Jesus changed his destiny. Jesus changed his identity. Jesus transformed his life. All Andrew did was tell him what Jesus had already done for him. I I know it's not complex. It's so simple that you could actually do it, which makes us uncomfortable in church. Nervous laughter. Then Andrew, verse 42, brought him to Jesus. Jesus has his interaction with the Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come follow me, which means come be my disciple. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. Philip went to look for, I'm seeing a pattern. Philip is found by Christ and saved by Christ, Nathaniel then goes out and told uh, his brother. Phil, or excuse me. Philip goes and finds his brother Nathaniel and says, "We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth." Verse forty-six. Great text. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Immediately, Philip goes into an exegesis about how the Old Testament prophesied and points to the fact that he would come out of Nazareth and be born in. Beth- no. Notice what he does. He doesn't try and answer a question he doesn't know. Instead, he says, come and see for yourself. I don't know. (sighs) Can we just get better at saying that every now and then? Like some of us are silent about our faith because you think that you have to know everything. You don't have to know everything. I don't know most things. And some of you are like, that makes me nervous. Well, you should be. Like like I, I am dependent on Jesus. I need Jesus. Like, I am a demonstration of, in my weakness, him being strong. I'm not trying to make myself weak, I just am. I do CrossFit twice a week, still weak. I try and eat healthy at least once a week, still chubby. Come and see for yourself. As they approached Jesus, he said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Obviously, Nathaniel had humility. Here's a man of integrity. Yeah, that's my name. What's up? And, and we read this interaction and a lot of times it doesn't make sense. He says, how do you know about me? And the thing around Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. And that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but in the Talmud, which was kind of like the um, uh, Bible study, you know the Bible study notes in your Bible, and anybody got a study Bible? Okay, so the Talmud was like, how do you live out the Jewish life? And in the Talmud, it says that daily, you should sit around the middle of the day under a tree and reflect on the Torah, And so what what Jesus is pointing to is that Nathaniel is devoutly seeking the Messiah that he doesn't know. And in that, he reveals himself to be the Messiah that he was looking for. And so just to see the pattern, John heard, John saw, John told. The disciples heard, the disciples saw, and the disciples told. And some are like, it can't be that simple. But the problem is the proof is in the banana pudding. Amen. Praise God. Am I preaching now? Did I wake somebody back up? Some of you were like, you were out the door. You weren't here. And I said, banana pudding. You're like, what? what? Is there banana pudding after this? We, maybe, maybe. Stay with me. The disciples were the disciples told. My wife and I moved to Bakersfield, California 13 years ago. And we were praying about how we were gonna survive. I wasn't gonna have an income. We were gonna live off of our savings account and the income that she had. There's a lot of crazy God stuff that happened during that time. But one of the first things we did is we began to pray about a job where where Morgan could not just make temporary money but make an eternal difference. We never viewed her job as a means to put bread on the table. We viewed it as a means to make God's name known. Just wanna let that sit in. Some of you are working for bread and it's not the bread of life. Some of you, some of you are pouring your life out and it's not gonna matter in eternity. It may be a great biography, but it will not be a great testimony. So we pray, God, you know, would you open a door into a place of influence? And usually at times, the places that God opens up are not very attractive as you're walking in the door. You're like, I don't know about this. And that, that was where she went. It was not a preschool that was like, man, this is one of the top five. It, the reviews were not beautiful. Uh, the employees were delinquent. I wouldn't give them my kid. Like I, I I I'll just be honest. I'm like, yeah, you're not. Maybe the boy, but but I wouldn't give them my, <laughs> I wouldn't give him my, my But Morgan goes in, and it, one of it, this is what was funny. We were 25 years old. We were we had been married for three years. And they were like, hey, you're married. And she was like, yeah. And they're like, oh, did you get pregnant? And she was like, no. And then they were like, well, why'd you get married? So my wife began to not give testimony to, well, he was just that good looking. And and I mean, it it, would have been truthful. (laughs) Just acting like Nathaniel right now. no, she, she began to, to point to our desire to honor God, to serve God, that we were in this city because we felt God put a call on our life to reach the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as she began to espouse it looking weirder than you know uh, a person that we're, we're, is wearing a cat and a hat on not cat in a hat day, people began to listen. And out of nowhere, this beautiful woman brought this girl named Ashton high and hung over to church. Who had heard about Jesus from my wife. And she came to see for herself. And after a short amount of time, she gave her life to Jesus. She went on to be our children, one of our children's directors. God was at work. So Ashton had heard and seen. So she naturally, loving her sister Tara, who was far from God, went and told her sister Tara, hey, you gotta come and hear about Jesus. And her sister Tara showed up at church off of hearing from Ashton about Jesus. Now, were there churches available? Had she heard about Jesus from people she didn't trust before? Yeah, but this was different. This was family. This was someone she trusted, leveraging influence in her life. And so she heard the gospel and she too surrendered her life to Jesus. She had a young son whose father died tragically in a car wreck. And I began to get to share Christ with Aiden and they began to share Christ with Aiden. One day we were in the back of my car. I took him to get ice cream and we were talking about life. And he said, Pastor Russ, what do you do for a real job? (sighs) Some of y'all probably thought the same thing. And I said, well, I, I, I preach and I, I serve our community and I equip saints for works of service. Aiden's what it says in the book of Ephesians. He's like, no, 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 like for money. And I was like, no, I, believe it or not, Aiden, they pay me. They uh, can call it that uh, for doing this. And he's like, no, but for real. And I was like, no, for real, this is what I do. And after a lot of those kinds of conversations, one day Aiden came up and said, I wanna give my life to Jesus and I wanna be baptized. It started with one person who had heard, seen, and told, Who told someone who had heard, seen, and told. Who told someone that had heard, seen, and told. Who told someone who had heard, seen, and told. Now, this is where it gets fun. Because for some of us, we have people in our life that are called the low-hanging fruit. Like, we know that if we put a little invitation out there, they'd likely come because they're churched enough to where they're comfortable enough to come back. But there's some people that are, like, adamantly against God. And they're on that list of people that we're scared to write down their name or pray for because we just don't believe anymore that God actually has the power to save people like that. So they were disconnected from their mom, Julie. And Julie was reliving in her 40s and 50s, her 20s. And it had caused a lot of conflict within the family. And so they invited Julie to come and hear the gospel because they had heard and seen and been changed by Jesus. And she seeing the change in her daughters. And in their relationship came And as a result, Julie went from being someone who was far from God to someone who was transformed by the power of God. I got to baptize her too, which then brings us to my favorite story. My favorite story was their friend Jeremy. Jeremy was aggressively against the faith and not silent about it. He told me once at a hockey game, uh, that's, I, you're cool, uh, I like the uh, fact that you're religious, that's not me, I'm not religious, I hate that stuff, I never wanna hear about it. Like multiple times, let me know. Do not, with your mouth, tell me about, like, I don't wanna hear. So we prayed and prayed and prayed. After about a year of praying for him, Ashton gave her testimony at church and he came. And we thought, oh, this is it and nothing happened. He told us the band was good. <laughs> That's about all we got. And I was like, we'll take it. 18 months later at the Easter service, he came again. And he was sitting in the service and like some of you were the first Sundays you came, he was like visibly disturbed. Like, like. And, and why? You just snapped a picture of that. Dear God, don't put that on social media. Okay, uh. <laughs> um, and so I'm getting to the end of the message and I'm laying out the gospel that here's why we have confidence that Jesus is risen from the dead and I'm getting ready to give him the invitation and he's like so uncomfortable that he can't contain it so he in a packed room stands up and is shuffling as I'm giving the invitation out and he turns literally to run out the back door and as he has gotten past the last roast where only I can see him this is what I see he's running I'm standing in the front and this happens and now he's locked eyes with me and I, I can't make this up as I am getting to the end of the invitation and he's turning I, I literally believe God's hand was like nope, time to come home <laughs> nope, time, time to come home and, I say out loud as he's turning, and if you want to give your life to Jesus, I just want to invite you on the count of three to stand to your feet as a statement of faith that you have heard and want to believe and place your life in the hands of this Savior that we celebrate this Easter. One, two, and he turns and it's three. And I said, sir, do you want to give your life to Jesus? I want to give my life to Jesus. This guy went from rolling joints with the Psalms to reading, celebrating, and telling others about them tell me what my God can and cannot do. Our job is not to save, but our job is to tell. That is our job. And so you got these cards that came in, uh, in your seat. If you didn't get one, we'll give you one. There's a QR code on the front, which gives you some ways to invite your friends. But what's important is on the back. On the back, there's some slots for you to prayerfully consider some people who are within your sphere of influence, who are far from God that you wanna make a commitment to your church community and to your God, that you in the next few weeks and months are going to daily pray for them. We're seeking a resurrection from the dead. We're not trying to make moralistically better people, ethically better people. Like, like we are trying to allow people who are dead in sin to come alive in Christ. So it's gonna take prayer. So you're gonna pray for them daily. You're gonna invest in them consistently or weekly. You're gonna invest in them weekly. Why? Because you're not trying to give them some gimmick sales pitch so that they come to church and you can move on to the next people. These are people that are at your table. These are people that you're going to hang out with, that you're going to break bread with. So we're we're leveraging the influence we have because we love them. I, y'all, my my cousin Teddy uh, was on a rage. He made more money than most of us will make as a chef. He's cooked for The Rock, cooked on movie sets, cooked for The Walking Dead. That makes him really cool. Uh, But he was an alcoholic and using cocaine and all kinds of stuff. And I have prayed, I mean, for like a decade that God would move in his life and nothing would happen. I would have conversations with them. Nothing would happen. He was just churched enough to be dangerous, but still gonna bust the gates of hell wide open. And uh, earlier this year, he came to me and said, I'm ready. And he checked into a rehab program. He's in month 10 right now. In two months, I'm flying back to California. I'm going, going back, back to get him out of that place. And God has done a restorative work in his life. He's changed him and he he was the unreachable. Now, when he comes back, I'm not gonna ignore him. Why? That's my cousin. We're gonna go play golf with our fathers who are aging. We're gonna go to Clemson games together. Uh, if, if he chooses to get married, I, I'm gonna be at that wedding hooting and hollering. I won't be the one that uh, messes up his car with stuff. These are my people. It's not a project, this is an image bearer. I love Teddy. I want him in the kingdom of God. So I prayed for him. We invest in him. And then finally, we invite them consistently to spaces where they can hear the gospel. It may be your table at home, it may be your church, it may be your group that you're sharing the word in, but invite them to where they can hear the gospel and other people give a witness. And now here's what I'm asking you to do. At the first part of this song, uh, if you do not know Jesus, I wanna invite you to stand to your feet like Jeremy did several Easter's ago, like my cousin did recently. And I wanna invite you to come forward and allow one of our prayer team leaders to talk to you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. It's a bold step. For others of you, you need to start with recommitting yourself to the work of the Lord. You've been building a biography instead of a testimony. And it's time for you to surrender to God's work and let him tell a story through your life that you couldn't tell for yourself. But finally, for some of you today, I wanna invite you in the first part of this song to sit and just simply write the names of people who are far from God within your sphere of influence that you'll do those three things for. And let's trust that God will do the harvest work that we can't do. And let's stand in amazement in the weeks to come as we pray invest and invite and watch what only jesus can do in and through his bride who is a witness to his resurrection the church in jesus name you move us the lord leads prayer team you come forward if you need to sit and reflect you do that if you need to come forward and receive prayer you do that let's go <laughs>